Welcome to Free Thoughts. I'm Trevor Burris. Joining me today is Kathy Young, Cultural Studies Fellow at the Cato Institute and contributing editor to Reason. Today we'll be discussing her article from the December 2021 issue of Reason, Yes, It Was an Evil Empire. Welcome to Free Thoughts, Kathy. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Where were you born? I was born in Moscow. I actually wrote a book that came out in 1989 called Growing Up in Moscow. Brezhnev? Yes, that was, uh, well, I, yeah, I was born in 1963, which was right on the cusp of the Khrushchev and Brezhnev era. Of course, I don't remember anything of, you know, of the uh, Khrushchev era. But yeah, I grew up uh, in the late 60s and 70s under Brezhnev, and it was the era of what later came to be known as the Great Stagnation, when you know, it seemed like nothing would ever change, and uh, things just kind of slogged on and on, um, gradually getting worse in many areas, uh, but, you know, that was uh, with nothing really dramatic happening. Well, compared to, say, the 50s, so it was less oppressive. It was, it was less oppressive than Stalin, correct? Oh, yeah. No, it was definitely less oppressive than Stalin, and I... Um, as a teenager, I sort of got to know a little bit about the Stalin era, not only from reading. My, my parents uh, were among those people who, you know, while they were not openly dissidents, they did have forbidden literature in, in the house sometimes, including uh, the Gulag Archipelago by Solzhenitsyn, which my dad borrowed from somebody for like three days and which was sort of very quickly devoured. Um, and I read parts of that too. Um, uh, but also there were people who were family friends and relatives uh, who uh, had been in the Gulag uh, during the Stalin era. And uh, actually my own grandparents, my, my father's uh, parents, um, were um, sent to the labor camps uh, in uh, like the, I think it was in 1949. And um, when my father was uh, 14 years old, and that was, uh, uh, that was, uh, you know, a, a pretty bad thing to happen, obviously, for all sorts of reasons. But among other things, uh, there were things like, you know, there were relatives who crossed the street when they saw him because it was dangerous to be associated with somebody whose parents were in prison. And, uh, yeah, the only, the, 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 the lucky thing, so to speak, which saved him from going to an orphanage, which was generally a terrible place, was that his sister, his older sister, was, uh, you know, off age and therefore could be an official caretaker. Um, the thing that was kind of ironic is that unlike uh, the vast majority of people who went to the gulag in the Stalin era, my dad's parents had actually done what they were accused of doing, which is they belonged to a sort of underground uh, Zionist group that was planning to get out and emigrate to Israel. And th there was apparently some kind of arrangement to smuggle them across the border, which, you know, apparently there was an informant in the group and, you know, everybody got arrested. And, um, and my grandparents, uh, I think, spent four years in the gulag uh they got out early because stalin died and that was obviously lucky but uh but you know there were other people who uh you know i knew about by sort of word of mouth like my 
Um, my mother had a colleague at work whose father, I think, spent something like 10 years in, in the camps uh, because during the war, uh, you know, the, in 1941, when Stalin was giving a radio address, um, her uh, and uh, like many other people at the time, they lived in a communal apartment where there were several families, and there were people gathered around the radio listening to Stalin, and this was obviously in the middle of the German invasion. And uh, this woman's father made a remark along the lines of, like, my God, Stalin sounds so terribly depressed. And, you know, which is not really that, you know, remarkable. Um, he didn't say anything critical about Stalin. He was re expressing, you know, fear and concern, obviously. And uh, somebody reported him for, you know, spreading defeatist propaganda and off to the gulag he went. And there were many, many other cases like that. Um, uh, you know, so yeah, I heard all those stories. I certainly knew about the Stalin era and, uh, um, you know, the, the compared to that, uh, we certainly had a lot of freedom. Um, there was much more cultural freedom in the sense of at least some degree of access to Western culture. There were, you know, American movies um, that sometimes played in the theaters. Um, actually, more Western European, I think, than American, but occasionally it was American ones as well. Um, there was, it was just in, in many, many ways, it was much freer than in the Stalin era. But, uh, but even so, it was quite a repressive society. I mean, one of the things I can tell you is that as a child, um, um, when my parents started uh, talking in front of me about, you know, the the fact that they were very critical of the of the uh, regime that we lived under, that you know, uh, in contrast to what they were telling me at school, you know, we were not actually terribly lucky to have been born in the Soviet Union, that it wasn't really the workers' paradise. And when I was uh, maybe nine years old, you know, my mother would tell me, you know, just remember never to mention to anyone at school what we tell you at home. And, um, you know, and she would basically say, you know, otherwise we could go to jail. And, uh, and that was certainly something that I memorized uh, when I was, again, nine or 10 years old, that, you know, the things that we talk about at home, you know, the books that my parents have, uh, you know, none of that could be mentioned to anyone at school, because otherwise, we would be in huge trouble. Well, it seems that that's one of the underappreciated, even definitely in the Stalin era, but even in the Khrushchev Brezhnev era and after that the regime gave individual people a ton of power to say rat on their neighbor if they didn't like their neighbor for oh, some absolutely. reason, or if they did exist in some sort of bureaucratic level, they had the ability to grant favors or take them away. And that was the kind of positions you were going for. So it aid empowered people to just lie and get rid of people they don't like, but also to use those positions for their advantage. And that's the, the, the form of corruption that kind of becomes just endemic to the oh, whole society. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, uh, it, it's kind of remarkable that the, the power and the access to sort of special favors was not really limited, for instance, to 
you know, uh, ranking party members, uh, of whom, by the way, they were a great many because every city, every district inside every city had its own party structure. So that, for instance, if you were the head or the deputy head even of the local party committee, you certainly had a lot of power on that level. Uh, but even uh, people who had access to rare goods, for instance, which could be anything, Thing. Uh, if you worked inside the trade system, which was controlled by the government, um, you had a lot of power uh, in you know, by means of being able to sell things on the black market or just you know give them out as favors. Um, so that was, uh, and of course, you did run the risk occasionally of getting arrested for corruption when they wanted to make a show of. Uh, you know, fighting fighting corruption and uh, so on. But uh, generally speaking, if you were working in the trade system and you had enough connections to protect you, you had it made. And it, it's kind of interesting that uh, money per se wasn't totally meaningless. Like if you were one of the relatively few people who made a lot of and, a lot of money by Soviet standards, for instance, if you were a writer whose books were selling well, or, you know, a scientist who, uh, uh, you know, was highly paid because that was one of the relatively few highly paid positions. Um, it's not that you couldn't do anything with money, but what you could do with money was very limited compared to what you could do with connections. So connections were really everything. Do you remember what you were taught about America in this and the and two things in particular like one you know what was the image of America and then two how did they explain seeming American abundance to to you as a school child uh, well uh well it wasn't just American abundance but Western abundance in general um I I think generally the way to explain it was that, well, you know, the things that you may sometimes see, it's really just a front. It's, you know, it's uh, uh, covering the, you know, underbelly of widespread poverty and so on and so forth. I remember that there was a um, an amusing incident in uh, when I was, I think, in fourth grade. Um, there was, uh, the, there was a boy in my class who, whose father had gone on a trip to, on a business trip to, I forget which country, but it was some Western country. And, uh, he offered to, you know, the father offered to come in and, you know, show the kids a slideshow of, you know, pictures that he had taken. And, um, and of course, everybody was really excited about that. And we, we saw the slideshow and, you know, it included things like, you know, uh, supermarket shelves. And, uh, you know, and of course, everybody was sort of duly impressed. And then um, our teacher, who was uh, also, uh, this was sort of a special class meeting sort of session that we had weekly and everyone um after primary school because in primary school you you had one sort of main teacher once you went on to middle school 
uh, and you had a lot of different teachers for, for different subjects. You had one teacher who was also the sort of class guide, was the official name, who oversaw the sort of political education. And um, our class guide, who was the geography teacher, happened to be, I mean, he was basically a Stalinist. I mean, I remember him because we had those weekly meetings and I remember him uh, sort of ranting about Solzhenitsyn and how, you know, they should have shot him instead of, you know, sending him, you know, sending him abroad. So yeah, he was a pretty hardcore guy. And he decided that uh, the slideshow was politically incorrect, because it presented too, you know, too uh, attractive a vision of life in whatever country it was, it may have been New Zealand, you know, but it was, um, it was definitely some, you know, capitalist country. So he, um, went on a lengthy rant about how, you know, don't be deceived by these things you see, because what it doesn't tell you is that, you know, medical care is incredibly expensive. And, uh, you know, he, he had some sort of booklet in which, you know, he rattled off, you know, this is how much you pay for a hospital bed. And, uh, um, and of course, it's funny, because um he, I, I, when he had a, when he said a hospital bed, I'm sure he envisioned a sort of Soviet-style hospital with like 12 beds in a single ward, and you know it really couldn't occur to him that you know probably the the money that he was you know, the, the amount of money that he was mentioning was referring to a private room in a hospital. And of course, you know, he didn't say anything about people having health insurance. So it was just this, um, you know, idea that it was uh, uh, like incredibly expensive and unaffordable to get a hospital bed and stuff like that. So basically, he really felt that he had to neutralize this uh, overly attractive vision of abundance. Uh, so yeah, I think that was one. So how... How did people like him, very firm believers, unlike your parents, and the party maybe in official in official communications, how did they explain the deprivation that was obvious to everyone in terms of lines for food and not having, say, sausages for a couple of weeks or something? How did they explain that as something – it couldn't be communism. It had to be something different, right? Right, right. Well, it was basically that, you know, people were insufficiently conscientious and, you know, there was – for too much, uh, you know, irresponsibility everywhere. And there were, you know, the, some people, unfortunately, were still dishonest and, you know, selling stuff on the black market as if, you know, obviously, if there had been an adequate supply of goods, there wouldn't have been a black market, but that doesn't seem to cross anyone's mind. And, uh, but, you know, I think it's more that, I don't think there really was a an acknowledgement per se that things weren't working. I think it was one of those things that, you know, everyone knew on a personal level, but, you know, that was never, again, to the extent that it was acknowledged, it was always along the lines of, well, unfortunately, we still have people with irresponsible attitudes who, you know, either slack off or you know, skim off the top to, you know, give stuff to their friends and relatives. And that's why, you know, we unfortunately have these failures of, uh, you know, the supply lines to the trade system. Um, and this is why also periodically they would arrest and jail someone for, 
skimming, doing things that everyone else was doing. (laughs) But, you know, but I think that was meant to show the people that, you know, yes, we're trying to take care of this problem. But it's interesting that on a sort of personal level, uh, people blame, like a lot of people didn't really blame communism per se. It was, uh, it was always a matter of, you know, finding some culprit to blame. Um, And communism was kind of abstract, and to many people, it didn't even occur to question the system itself. So, for instance, in Moscow, uh, a lot of people came in from other towns, uh, sometimes as far as, you know, four hours away by train. People would come in on weekends to shop for food because the, uh, you know, the, the supply in their towns was completely abysmal you know you you really had to uh like line up outside the store at 7 a.m if you wanted to buy anything because you know by by nine it would all be gone so people would come in and there was a lot of resentment among people in moscow of you know toward these people from out of town who came in to shop for food because you know the idea was that apparently you know that's why there's not enough left for us because all those people from other towns come in and take everything and um my mom had an experience where she was um standing in line for, uh, I think it was something like condensed milk or something. And, uh, and there was a woman, uh, who, an old woman who was sort of shabbily dressed and obviously looked like somebody from out of town. There was, you know, you, you could sort of tell the, the, the Moscow look versus the, you know, out of town look. And this woman was buying what people decided was too many cans of condensed milk. And people actually started yelling at her and going like you know there's not going to be enough left for us and you know you you obviously you know you out of town people you you come in here and you rob us blind and my mom just felt really bad and said something like you know you really should be ashamed of yourselves you know here's an old woman you know what instead of like offering her help carrying those cans of milk you know you're yelling at her and uh and of course then people started yelling at my mom so but it but that was um that was the thing that was you know you people looked for culprits um much closer to home than you know the system because again the system was kind of abstract exactly uh, so that in the in your article on reason you address this sort of strange phenomenon i mean I, i was born in 1980 so i kind of remember communism from this side of the pond but you know you kind of thought that this sort of demon was buried and it wouldn't come back which i guess was naive because you know at some point at some point everyone who actually remembers what it was like to live under communism will be dead and then it it will come back again if nothing else yeah Uh, but we're seeing we're seeing actual communists coming out and saying women's the soviet union was a women's rights paradise oh yeah yeah, that was uh, yeah, and I remember. Uh, I, I, I think you you remember too. There was this um, op-ed in uh, in the New York Times by a woman. Uh, I forget where she's a professor at, but it was women had better that, sex um, in the Soviet Union. That one women had better <laughs> sex under communism, which you know, which I found really hilarious because uh, you know, even leaving aside the. Uh, material problems of, you know, trying to have a sex life when you're, let's say, newlyweds who are forced to share an apartment with your in-laws. And, you know, you may not even have a private room. You may just have, 
you know, a part of a room that's curtained off from your mother-in-law. I mean, imagine how sexy that is, you know. And um, uh, so, yeah, but, but, you know, even aside from that, uh, Soviet society, except maybe like for a brief period of time in the 1920s, like immediately in the wake of the revolution, uh, Soviet society was incredibly puritanical. And partly, I think it was just the general um, sort of uh, belief that everything that had to do with your private life was kind of, you know, inferior and really like your energies had to go into being a good builder of communism. And, um, and of course, there were uh, in the West, there were all those jokes about how, you know, the, the Soviet romance novel is basically boy meets tractor. But uh, that was not so far away from reality, because if you look at uh, the sort of socialist realist literature, which really, you know, the officially approved literature, um, whatever romantic storyline there was always had to be sort of secondary to the um, to the dedication to ideology, and uh, now again, it wasn't especially by the Brezhnev era. Um, the con- the control over culture really wasn't nearly as rigid as it had been, uh, you know, during the Stalin era, and um, uh, th- th- there were a lot of like cultural products, like even the movies and the uh, you know TV movies that were made in the seventies. A lot of them were based on classics. Like there was a, uh, a musical miniseries of the Three Musketeers that was made in the seventies and that was hugely popular. So you know, obviously that really wasn't you know very Soviet, uh, but um, uh, but yeah, the ideology itself was incredibly puritanical. Well, one of the tropes, one of the Soviet, because uh, it doesn't seem like the the five workers who are often lined up along Stalin. There's the the farm worker and the and the factory worker, but the the woman the woman was always very much women's work type of thing. I mean, there were women in factories, oh, yeah. but the, the classic Soviet woman, it's a pretty patriarchal society even today. So you're not going to turn overturn that with right. Soviet. You- yeah, no, very much so. And uh, again, I think there was initially, there was a sort of upsurge. Uh, there was a bit of a feminist you know, impulse in the 1920s, you know, during the revolutionary period. But especially after uh, World War II, when um, obviously, you know, the Soviet Union had lost uh, a lot of, you know, population during the war and also, by the way, people, yeah. as a result of the Gulag. So, you know, there was a very strong feeling that, you know, they wanted to encourage, uh, you know, more motherhood. And of course, uh, and, and part of that was this encouragement of very sort of patriarchal and uh, uh, really very traditionalist attitudes. And of course, you know, the the real reason people were not having kids was not because, you know, they had the wrong attitudes toward sex roles, but because they didn't have, for instance, enough living space or, you know, because they, you know, it was, uh, it was very, very difficult, uh, just economically to have more than one child. So, yeah, I mean, I, I would say, by the way, that of the uh, kids I knew at school, I would say there were maybe like one or two who had a sibling. It was quite unusual. And, you know, the vast majority, uh, like myself, you know, were only children. And um, 
but yeah, as part of like encouraging more motherhood, there was uh, there was a very very kind of sexist um, ethos, and I, at school, for instance, you know, we had um, the, the, this very traditional division of you know we had home economics for girls and we had you know shop for boys, so it was uh, really in that sense. Uh, um, very, very traditionalist. Now, there, there are other people who have claimed kind of stunningly uh, that in terms of racial hierarchies that the Soviet Union also did better than the United States. Now, obviously, the United States has a horrible system of oppression of race that, that continued and to many ways continues to this day. But you, you talk about this Robert Robinson person who I had not encountered this story before. Yeah, it's a fascinating story. Yeah, that was a fascinating story that I came across while I was researching this piece. Um, I and, and actually, it started with uh, something that I saw on Twitter. Somebody had a you know screenshot from a book saying you know look how uh, you know advanced the Soviet Union was with regard to racism, and you know no wonder the Western capitalists had to like demonize it in every way they could. And uh, the screenshot was um, from a book which I later tracked down. And it was about a case in which a black American auto worker who uh, went to the Soviet Union in the 30s to take a job, um, who was attacked in the cafeteria by two white Americans who, you know, didn't like a black guy sitting next to them. And uh, the the white Americans were actually put on trial for a racial uh, for for a racist incident, and then were expelled from the Soviet Union. They were again they were Americans, and I think they were all from Detroit. And uh, this was also made into a huge case apparently in the Soviet press, where they were contrasting the sort of ingrained racism of these Americans with the the commitment to racial equality that existed in the uh, in the Soviet Union, and this person person was incredibly impressed by um, uh, by this uh, story. I, and I actually, interestingly enough, I, in, uh, I, I found a book uh, which was written by a professor of education. I forget his name, um, but uh, uh, from uh, from Indiana. Derek um, R. Ford. Yeah, Derek R. Ford, Politics and Pedagogy in the Post-Truth Era, Insurgent Philosophy and Practice. Yes. Praxis. There, right, there's a right. scintillating academic title for you. Oh yeah, yeah. So yeah, and it's I haven't read the entire book, but you know, judging from that excerpt, it's very pro-communist. Uh, and then I started trying to track down the story itself, and I had a difficult time doing that because this guy managed to get the black person's name wrong. I mean, talk about the irony, right? Like you're, you know, you're a white progressive academic, you know, telling this edifying story about you know Soviet anti-racism, and you know, you get the black person's name wrong because you can't be bothered to like you know read the story carefully enough and yeah so the um uh, so he he got the name wrong and i found the um uh the uh, actual person whose name was robert um uh, robinson not robertson as the as the book claimed uh but it's it, it turned out to be a fascinating story really because this guy um uh, was a black American who did in fact go to the Soviet Union in, I think, 1931, uh, because he felt that, you know, maybe he would have a better life there. And yeah, of course, at the time, he, he obviously racial segregation and, you know, racism was a 
really, really terrible problem in America. And he did um, uh, find a job, you know, and, and of course the Soviet Union at the time was kind of clamoring for foreign specialists uh, because, you know, they wanted to build up their industry and, uh, um, you know, Lenin had originally imagined that, you know, illiterate peasants could be quickly trained to be, you know, to be uh, good specialists in anything Machinists, from, you know, factory workers, engineers, yeah. to, to engineering, right? It turned out that that wasn't quite the case, you know, even with communist ideology. So they, they had to fall back on recruiting foreign specialists, a lot of whom, by the way, later ended up in the gulag, but that's another story. Uh, the, so this guy from Detroit did become, um, you know, a uh, uh, sort of highly qualified auto worker and, you know, achieved a position that he later said, you know, he would not have been able to achieve in in the United States at the time, probably, you know, given the level of racial discrimination. But what, uh, what uh, this book um, uh, didn't really reveal is that this person later spent uh, like pretty much well not the, the thankfully not the rest of his life but like the next 40 years trying to get out of the Soviet Union because you know as the as stalinism solidified and you know things became more and more repressive and he saw you know other americans uh, around him getting arrested one by one uh, you know, including some of the other, you know, black people who were working in the Soviet Union. And he realized that, you know, things were getting really bad. And uh, it was also, uh, I mean, he was sort of an additional jeopardy because he was a practicing Christian. And that was something that was very much frowned upon. And um, when he tried uh, to, uh, you know, to, to, to get permission to return to, to, to the United States, they wouldn't let him. And, um, and well, not only that, but he also, um, he ended up, by the way, he did eventually manage to return to the United States in the 70s. So, I mean, he basically spent 40 years living in the Soviet Union. Uh, and, and, you know, the vast majority of that time unwillingly and, you know, a lot of the time uh, fearing that he was going to be, you know, arrested and, uh, and sent to Siberia. Um, that, all this makes sense. And I he mean, also wrote, he wrote a book after he returned. Yes, and Black it, on Red, 1988. Black on Red, yeah. And, uh, you know, he talks, among other things, about experiencing a great deal of uh, sort of everyday racism, including incidents where, you know, people would uh, move away from him on the bus and, you know, some woman called him a black devil and, you know, things like that. And, and it just generally more, you know, very condescending and very... Uh, uh, you know, kind of objectifying in a sense, you know, attitudes where he was useful only as a symbol of the, you know, black people's struggle against capitalism, but no one was really interested in treating him as an individual. Well, so we have this this strange communist nostalgia coming from Westerners and academics, of course, but it seems we also have an increasing amount of communist nostalgia coming from Vladimir Putin himself and possibly possibly average Soviet citizen or Russian citizen, sorry. Um, yeah. Is, that seems resurgent uh, to kind of move it up to present day uh, in terms of maybe Putin changing his mind or lack. He, he has said that the fall of the Soviet Union was 
the biggest human rights catastrophe of the 20th century or something. I can't remember what the exact words, but geopolitical, geopolitical, geopolitical. that was, yeah. So, I mean, and he has reasons maybe to be nostalgic given his position with during the the Soviet times. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you though, uh, Putin is a complicated case in that sense, because I think his nostalgia uh, where, where, you know, it's always difficult for me. Like when when I look at these uh, statements that Putin makes, these sort of ideological statements, it's always hard to tell. You know how much of that is what he personally believes, and how much of that is from public consumption. Because I think, uh, to a very large extent, uh, you know, if you look at his career, uh, you know, his post-Soviet career. Um, I think a lot of it is just really uh, the pursuit of personal enrichment and power. And I think the ideology in many ways is really just a cover for that. And the ideology is an attempt to find this, you know, ideological, um, you know, organizing principle to build, uh, you know, this new authoritarian society around. Uh, I mean, I think he... Uh, he knows that an authoritarian society needs some sort of, you know, raison d'etre beyond just, you know, the people at the top having power and wealth and handing it out to their cronies. Uh, So, uh, you know, from his standpoint, the best way to, um, um, you know, justify his regime is with appeals to, uh, and it's interesting because it's a really kind of schizophrenic mix of appeals to, you know, this nostalgic vision of the Soviet past and uh, appeals to imperial Russian greatness. So it's... uh, And even the Orthodox Church. So three things that often don't fit very well together. Right. So it's not really straightforward Soviet nostalgia. And actually, it's interesting that you will find, if you look at his rhetoric around Ukraine, for instance, like one of his uh, um, arguments for why Ukraine is not a real country, so to speak, is that it was first granted independence by Lenin. And he basically, part of his argument is, look, it's just this, you know, part of the scheme that the Bolsheviks cooked up as, you know, part of their revolution, which, you know, involved the destruction of the Russian Empire. So he's really, in that sense, he's appealing more to empire uh, than he is to um, to the Soviet era. But I think the, the, the unifying uh, kind of principle um is um, th- this uh, national greatness idea, whether it's Soviet national greatness, you know, the victory over Nazism, uh, or it's imperial, uh, you know, the, the Russian imperial state. And it's also this sort of, um, uh, not even really anti-capitalist, but anti-individualist um, uh, kind of ethos, because the... Uh, uh, the, the the demonization of liberalism as uh, you know a, a belief system based on personal autonomy uh, sort of combines you know appeals to again to the Soviet past when uh, you know there were these supposedly altruistic ideals of uh, um, you know collectivism and uh, distribution of you know equitable distribution of wealth supposedly. And uh, this um, sort of communal vision of Russian orthodoxy and uh, and czarism. So again, like the the uh, the common principle is 
is anti-liberalism. Well, well, is that interesting? Now you're saying this and I'm thinking that there is a lack, maybe, maybe he's struggling to find a connective ideology because a hundred years from now or 500 years from now, the historians will look at the space between the fall of the Soviet Union and let's say now 30 years as, as a blink of an eye and they will construct, you know, they will say when the Soviet Union fell, you had all these, the corruption we discussed, all the people who had achieved party status by trading favors and they all became the oligarchs and they just sort of continued this stratified Russian society. They chose Putin as the one to keep keep this going as long as they could continue to suck the country dry. But But they didn't have anything to give the people like the false ideology of communism to say, this is what we're doing. And so maybe Putin is looking for that. What is the, the, the idea of Russian greatness or something? Because they, they know that this is an oligarchic society, right? I mean, the Russians know this. Oh yeah. Yeah. Of course. Yeah. Uh, well, and it's interesting because partly um, Putin's appeal to the people uh, is actually sort of, well, not, not, really capitalist but i mean part of his appeal is that he was able to uh as they see it you know to restore normality uh you know after the very chaotic yeltsin years and uh you know under putin actually the russian middle class did achieve a kind of modicum of um you know a quasi you know quasi capitalist existence um and a lot of it of course was based on uh, oil wealth so you know there there really the like there was very little in the way of really growing you know russian capitalism and entrepreneurship uh you know partly because the system of bribery continued there's still very little you know reliable rule of law and of course under putin the um the, the consolidation of the authoritarian state really means that property owners have no uh re- no assurance that they will not you know have everything taken away and will not be sent to jail if they cross the wrong people in government so to that extent you know what's really missing is still is the right the rights based order in which uh you know the the average citizen including the entrepreneur and the property owner uh knows that his or her rights will be protected uh and uh um you know that i think is a is a huge huge problem and uh and yeah but 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 it's interesting that at least in uh maybe the first 10 years of uh of the putin regime a big, big part of his appeal was this sort of, uh, you know, uh, now we have a normal life, you know, we can enjoy, you know, all those consumer goods, uh, you know, you can travel abroad, you know, you, you have enough money to go on vacation to, you know, Paris and Rome and that sort of thing. Um, and and I think that was uh, a big part of his appeal to the uh, sort of to the Russian middle class, which did support him. Do we have any idea how how popular? He, do, I mean, you having you know more connections there because it's hard to tell with the polls. But I I hear from many of my Russian friends that he actually is very popular. Uh, yeah, well, his popularity I think has kind of um, waxed and waned at different times. I think he was genuinely popular 
at least uh, like in the first decade uh, or maybe the first you know, eight or nine years of um, of his rule. Um, and I think at the time the polls were still more, you know, compared to today, uh, I think the polls were uh, often an accurate indication of public opinion. Uh, today, um, I mean, especially now, it's really, really hard to tell what's going on from the polls. Uh, I mean, you know, I've seen stories about people just not wanting to talk to pollsters anymore, especially when they're asked about the war in Ukraine. Um, uh, because, you know, like people have very explicitly said, you know, what am I crazy? Like, you, you, you know, my phone number, obviously, you know who I am. And I'm going to tell you what I think about the, the about, you know, the, the special operation in Ukraine. Like, no, thanks. I'm not crazy. And then they hang up. Uh, so a lot of people and I think from those comments, you can sort of gauge that at least some some people obviously have an opinion that they consider politically unacceptable, and uh, which is kind of interesting. And other people don't even bother to say that. They just hang up and they basically say, you know, I don't do polls, or, you know, sometimes they curse at the person who's calling. And, you know, so there's there's definitely, I mean, the, the fear of uh, saying the wrong thing is definitely back, and it's back for a good reason, because now they have this law where they can, Put you in you prison know, for punish, 15 years, uh, yeah. Up to 15 years mm -hmm. for uh, discrediting the prestige of a the special Russian operation. Yes. Or, yeah, and the special operation. And there was already a case in which a teacher um, got arrested because, uh, you know, she um, uh, said something in class in opposition to the war. And one of the students recorded her on his phone and, you know, reported her to the authorities and now she's seems facing like, seems you know, like old times right seems like yeah, old times yeah except seems like old times except with smartphones because you know back in my day i mean you know even like even a tape recorder was a kind of unthinkable luxury i mean my my uncle had one of those very old-fashioned you know cassette recorders but real to real these, the real to real you know, ones these, yeah uh, yeah, the the big uh, the big uh, bobbins with tape, and uh, that was you know even that was considered a luxury. I rem I think um, I was still in the Soviet Union when I saw my first like you know small audio cassette recorder, and not not many or anything, just you know sort of the size that you could hold in your hands, and you know. And I wow, you know, that's amazing. Like they actually have that abroad. Uh, but yeah, but of course now everybody has a smartphone and you can easily record somebody's uh, undesirable comment and, uh, you know, report them to the police. So yeah, so today it's very, very difficult to say what, uh, what public opinion is, you know, to what extent people buy this, uh, you know, Russian greatness uh, vision. Um, but, you know, there has been a lot of um, uh, just really um, kind of deranged um, ideological stuff that's been, uh, you know, circulating in Russia for the last you know, 10 or 15 years. It's actually an article that I'm working on. Like, there, there's a whole genre of uh, sort of speculative fiction 
that could be summed up as, you know, World War Three happens and then Russia rules the world. <laughs> so, you know, it's it's that sort of stuff. And it's been encouraged by the government. It's it's going around and, uh, um, you know, and, and uh, there's a whole like, School of pop philosophy, like Alexander Dugan, who you may have heard of. He is quite terrifying, Uh, and he is explicit in his in his Nazi roots. So he has said that he he yeah yeah like this is a guy this is a guy who very openly says that you know he's I think he's actually said that the problem. Well, the, the only problem is like real fascism has never been properly tried. I mean, people used to say that about communism, but this is uh, this is a new thing. Like the the uh, and I think he has also sort of explicitly said that the key to his vision is uh, sort of the 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 fusion of like the best of communism and fascism. So this is uh, this is great, you know. And this is uh, this is um, I don't know how accurate it is because some people have claimed that he's like you know Putin's guru. I'm not sure how true that is. Um, I don't know of any like personal connections between him and Putin. At one point, he was quite close to. Um, a guy named Sergei Glaziev, who was then the chairman of the Duma. So he definitely has had connections to the government. Uh, and, you know, even if it isn't Putin personally, that's still pretty scary. And, uh, you know, this is a guy who is quite influential. So, you know, because of that, it's always kind of ironic to hear you know, Putin and other uh, pundits in Russia talk about, you know, denazifying Ukraine. I mean, you know, maybe maybe start at home <laughs> because, I mean, there are certainly um, uh, some people to take care of there. So in, in this last in the uh, in the last minutes here, I don't know if you're if you want to do any predictions. I mean, we've seen in the last few days, we've seen Russians at least pulling back from the Kiev area uh, and maybe they're just going to end up occupying the the further east parts of Ukraine and pretend that they want a victory uh, rather than fight an insurgency for the next five years? Uh, that's a possibility. I mean, I think at this point it may even be difficult for them to hold on to the to eastern Ukraine. Um, it's, uh, you know, it, it, it depends on, uh, you know, one, one uh, dilemma I think that Putin has and I, I think people, I'm not saying anything original here, people have pointed this out, that in order to call up the manpower that he would need to get any kind of victory in Ukraine, he would really have to say, yes, we're at war and we're going to have a draft. Because otherwise, you know, he's pretty much exhausted what manpower he has. And by the way, there there's a spring draft coming up. I mean, I think we're going to probably see a lot of draft dodging because people know, despite the talk of special operation, and, you know, and, and they've sort of tried to maintain this pretense that they're not using any draftees in this quote-unquote special operation. Then there have been cases of you know, draftees actually ended ending up dead in Ukraine. Um, so, you know, they're trying to bring in like people from Syria and, you know, which is kind of insane because, you know, they're not going to be fighting on familiar terrain. You know, I, this is not going very well for Russia, obviously. And on the other hand, Ukraine is pretty close to activating, like, I think they've been training reservists very 
you know, um, obviously very intensively because they're in an emergency situation. And I think by, uh, I've seen the forecast that like by, by May or, or maybe by June, they're going to be ready to activate like another 300,000 people. And, you know, and this is where Putin is really going to have to make the decision. You know, does he openly declare that this is a war and, you know, and um, institute an actual universal draft where, you know, they're going to call up the reservists? Uh, And that's not going to be popular because, you know, one thing that I have seen, and I I actually find that convincing, that in spite of these polls, which supposedly show a high level of support for the war, um, there are not very many, like, spontaneous expressions of support for it. Like, um, I've seen people say that in... um, uh, 2014, when they took over Crimea, to which a lot of people in Russia really do have an emotional attachment, you know, a lot of them have spent their vacations there, because that was pretty much like the one decent place in the Soviet Union where you could go on vacation. Um, and at the time, uh, there were apparently like a, a huge number of cars were sporting, you know, Crimea's hours, you know, bumper stickers and stuff like that. And there are not many of those, like the, the, the bumper stickers with the Z, you know, which symbolizes this campaign has really not been showing up a lot. I mean, I've seen people say that they've seen more anti-war graffiti than they have, uh, you know, Z bumper stickers. I've also seen, interestingly enough, there was a video that somebody compiled of um, uh, Russians on, like, TikTok and Instagram uh, complaining about their cars being vandalized uh, when they, you know, after putting on a, a pro-war uh, you know, a Z bumper sticker. So there's a lot of, I think there's a lot of um, uh, a kind of undercurrent of anti-war sentiment. And uh, certainly I don't think anyone is particularly, is going to be particularly anxious to go to fight in Ukraine. Uh, so I think the draft under this, uh, you know, in this situation is going to have a lot of problems, especially if there, there isn't some kind of guarantee that, you know, we're not going to send you to Ukraine. Um, so, I don't know. I, In terms of predictions, um, I mean, you know, I've seen people predict that this could be like the beginning of the end of the Putin regime. But, I mean, I think it's so um, uh, uncertain at this point that uh, I really don't want to predict anything. Thanks for listening. If you enjoy Free Thoughts, make sure to rate and review us in Apple Podcasts or in your favorite podcast app. Free Thoughts is produced by Landry Ayers. If you'd like to learn more about libertarianism, visit us on the web at libertarianism.org.